If this is your first morning with Abide, we want to welcome you and give you a special welcome. We are always very excited to see new names on our list. If you are returning and you have been to Abide before, please know that we get just as excited when we see your names back on the list. So uh, welcome to all of you. I hope that you had a wonderful holiday and that you are ready to get back to work. Uh, I want to start this morning, let me see if I can get my Bible opened. I want to start this morning by giving you a small review and uh, give you a bit of an explanation as to how we came about to choose this particular study that we're about to start this morning. If you were here last time, uh, you would know that we studied the book Lies Women Believe by Nancy Lee DeMoss. And uh, one of the lessons in particular, we had the lesson on priorities. That was a particularly uh, convicting lesson for me. That was the lesson that had the number one lie. Anybody remember what the number one lie was? I don't have enough time. Very good. Very good. It's the one that said, I don't have time to do everything I'm supposed to do. And, And we learned at that time that we are given enough time every day to accomplish the things that God calls us to do. We are given the time to accomplish the things on God's agenda, okay? That was a very convicting lesson. That was also the lesson that said, the other lie that said, I can make it without consistent time in the word and in prayer. That was the lie that said, oh, we're so busy. And if we don't have time for everything, so I've got to skip something. So it's going to be spending time in God's word and in prayer because I can get by without it. Okay, it was that lie. And it was at that time, if you were here, that I shared a story about the way that I used to handle things. When I taught a class, I would try to be a very cheerful cheerleader and encourage my students to get into the Word of God. And if you were a new believer and a, and a, a busy mom, if you could just spend a few minutes every day, just five minutes, get alone with the Lord and, and pray. That's what I used to do, but not anymore. I've had to change because I have come to realize that we do not live in the 50s anymore. We do not live in the 80s. We do not live in the 80s where we had an administration that at the very least had a biblical worldview. If you were here, that was the week that I read this quote. Exposure to online pornography might have reached a point where it can be characterized as normative among youth internet users, especially teenage boys. In other words, we're being told now that internet porn use among our teenage boys is the new norm. According to the website Covenant Eyes, one in five mobile searches are for pornography. We live in a day where Miley Cyrus is considered mainstream entertainment. One British writer commented on watching Miley Cyrus with her young teenage daughter and being horrified, not just at what she was seeing Miley do on network TV, but what her daughter, how her daughter reacted to it. The daughter saw nothing wrong with it. She thought it was cool. You know, strip shows have been around forever, but we didn't used to take the kids to it. For the first time ever, I was doing my paperwork for my husband's annual um, benefit selection. And this year, there was a new box. There was a box for spouse, 
There was a box for child. There was a box for same-sex partner. Unlike previous administrations, this one is aggressively promoting a homosexual agenda. We talked about the increase of depression uh, last time. One source said that depression was now the number one cause of disability around the world. We know that depression is credited with the increase in suicide. According to the CDC, more people now die from suicide than car accidents. Abortion. Years ago, when I was raising children, the big debate was when does life begin? That is no longer argued. Abortion advocates concede that life begins at inception. They just don't care. They still demand unfettered rights to an abortion. One Planned Parenthood representative said this, even a baby born alive after a failed abortion should have its life or death decided only by its mother and her doctor. In April 2013, a federal judge in New York ordered that the morning after pill, otherwise known as emergency contraception, be made available to all women without any restriction of age. That order opened the door for girls as young as 10 and 11 to be able to obtain the morning after pill without any involvement from a parent or a doctor. These girls can't get uh, an aspirin, but they can now have access to this. President Obama suggested an improvement on that, and he set the age marker at 15. In the 80s, there was no such pill. We live in a day where our culture is saying that good is evil and evil is good. And many of you are raising children in this age. It is not the time for a light and easy cruise ship mentality. As your teacher, I want to see you dressed for battle. Okay. Now, if you will remember from that study, that was the one where I had the chair. And I said, I want you to imagine that you're in the chair and the spiritual forces and your flesh and the culture, it's all pushing down on you. It's pushing down on you and your family, trying to push you off the cliff. And I said, under the circumstances, we needed to take on a new position. We needed to have one foot firmly grounded on the word of God, reading the word of God, filling our heads with the word of God. And then the other leg was bent in prayer. And I said, that, is our new position. That lesson had a lot to do with the attraction to this book. For one thing, the book of Ephesians has much to say about prayer. Much of it is Paul praying. So we're going to have a good opportunity to talk about that. Also, the way this, uh, we're doing a book study on the book of Ephesians rather than a topical study. And so what we're going to find is that we're going to be doing something more inductive there's not as much commentary, and it's arranged in a way to help us learn how to study the Bible for ourselves. Okay? If we are uh, to be dressed for battle, we need to know how to feed ourselves spiritually. Uh, you also need to know how to feed your children. Teach them how to feed themselves. That's what I meant. Okay. Also, the book of Ephesians has much to say about not only surviving in a culture like we live in, but flourishing but flourishing in it. Now, 
All of that came about before we found out that our pastor was going to be preaching on it every Sunday morning. So, so it, things, have, things have really aligned, and so we're anxious to find out um, what God has for us. Okay, but there is a catch. There's always a catch. In the book of Ephesians, it divides beautifully into two parts. The first part is doctrine. First three chapters, doctrine. The second, three chap- three, um, second half of the book is practice. So you have three chapters of truth, and then you have three chapters of just good application of the truth that you've just read. For the first three chapters, we will not read a single command or a single imperative. But that's where the problem is. Because you see, we don't really like that in a Bible study. As women, we are doers. We're very works related. We want to know what we can do. We want to come in here and we want to know what can we do to have a better marriage? What can we do to have better behaved children? What can we do to have uh, less stress in our lives and things like that? Okay, but the first three chapters of Ephesians is not going to be about that. In the first half of Ephesians, Paul is going to talk to you about what you have, what you have been given what God has done for you. He's going to be talking about the greatness of God. He's going to be talking about who you were and what you used to do, but he's not going to give you any instruction in those first three chapters. Okay, Um, now I'm not saying that there's not going to be application, but for the first three chapters, Paul is basically going to expound on just the marvel of the grace of God. Okay, usually when you come here, I step on your toes and we talk about things that we need to do. Okay, you will not get that until we're halfway through the book, okay? The first lesson is appropriately named, learn to sit. Now, in the past, we have repeatedly said that what you believe affects what you do. Paul is going to build on that in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to learn that um, what we do is based on who we are. And Paul is going to spend three chapters making sure that you understand who you are. And then only after that will he move on and talk about what we're to do. Okay? And so our lessons are going to reflect that. Okay, now having said all that, I want to spend some time this morning getting some background on the book of Ephesians, okay? Because that'll help us get the most out of what we're about to study. So this morning, we want to put the book of Ephesians in its context, all right? And that brings us to the first thing on your paper. Point number one, when studying the Bible, context is king. Context is king. You could also write context rules. Either one of those will work. When you are studying the Bible, you want to keep a verse, you want to, whether it's a passage, whether it's a book, whatever, you want to make sure that it is in context. If you want to fully and accurately understand something, you want to understand it and put it in its context. Many of you... Over the Christmas break, likely around your dinner tables, had some conversation about Phil Robertson. (laughs) Phil Robertson is the patriarch of Duck Dynasty. Colorful fella. Gives an interview to GQ magazine. Makes some colorful comments. Then those colorful comments are pulled out and they are 
put on Twitter and they are blogged about and they are become the topic of all the late night shows and news shows. Just as all of that was beginning to die down, a video, he gets in more trouble, a video surfaces. This video is him saying that men should marry 15-year-old girls. Now, I occasionally get to work and teach the teenage girls here at Hickory Grove, and I can confidently say that no one here is recommending that they marry at 15. However, this is an excellent example and a lesson for us on the importance of context, okay? If we're to truly understand what he said, we have to take a look at who said it. We need to take a look at who he was talking to. We need to take a look at the occasion on which he said it and what was his purpose in saying it. You put all those things together and then you can find out what somebody really means. And that's what we want to do for the book of Ephesians. We want to put it in context so that we can understand it. Okay, um, anytime that we're studying a book, we want to put it in context, especially a book like Ephesians that can be hard to understand, that has some hot topics that we can easily misinterpret. So um, what I like to do is I, I've got a graph on your paper, <clears throat> and it's a square. And I like to think of each side of the square as a piece of fence. And we're going to put up a piece of fence for the various pieces of our context. Okay? And then after we have that set, when we're reading, if we come across a passage that's hard to understand or difficult, we're going to imagine ourselves inside the fence. And we're going to look at those verses from the perspective of being inside our fence in, within the context. Now, if you'll notice that I have a square and it's inside a bigger square, that's because your book of the Bible is always going to fit in the context, in the greater, bigger context of the Bible itself, okay? So you're never going to have some renegade book of the Bible off here doing its own thing, okay? You're, you're always going to see a square inside a square. All right, now what I'd like to do is uh, we are going to work through the book of Ephesians and um, determine uh, its context. And then what we'll see is, as we're studying throughout the next few weeks, we'll always come back and we'll put ourselves and remember these things that we set up because it's going to help us to understand. Now, there are four basic things that we want to consider. And by the way, um, this will work for any time that you're studying any New Testament book. And that is side A on your square. Side A is author. Who wrote the book? Who's the writer? Now, every book of the Bible is God-breathed. So, so God is ultimately the author but, we, but in the case of interpretation, we want to understand who the human author was that he um, used. All right, so that's A. Side B is your recipients. Who is he writing to? Who's the intended audience? Okay, side C is your historical setting. When is he writing? Okay, is there anything significant about the time that he's writing? And then side D is your purpose and theme of the letter. People write for a reason. So why is he writing? Okay. Sometimes the author is going to spell it out. Sometimes he'll say, this is why I am writing to you. And he spells it right out. Other times he doesn't say it. It's more implied. And so you'll have to do a little more digging in those cases. <clears throat> but the purpose of the book is going to help you understand. It's going to help us understand the book. Okay. Also at this point, we want to consider the tone of the letter. 
Now, have you ever received an email or a text message and you're just, you don't quite know how to take it because you don't know the tone in which it was said? Are they being sarcastic or be, are they being silly? Well, the tone is going to help us. So that'll be something that we want to consider there as, as well. Another thing, oftentimes when you're going through the book, if, if he's not spelling out what his purpose is, you can tell by the repeated words or the key words that are in the, the uh, chapter. For instance, if he's using the same word over and over again, you got a pretty good idea that's what, is, that's what the theme of the letter is. That's what his purpose for writing. Now, that brings me to the next point. I want to give you a definition for what a key word is. Number two on your paper. A key word is a word or phrase that helps unlock the meaning of a verse or passage. Okay, it's a word that if you take it away, the passage is going to be void of meaning. All right? Number three, a key word helps to establish the context, the overall theme, and the author's specific purpose for the book. And we're going to talk more about these as we go. And um, what I'd like to do now is we want to discuss these four things in light of the book of Ephesians and how they apply to this book. Now, I want to explain something, though, before we go. Um, when we sit down and we make these little charts and we put, uh, put these um, things in and we try to learn about all of this, it's not intended to make us smarter, to make us book smarter, so that you're, you know, smarter Bible women and smarter than the other women at church. That's not what our goal here is. Our goal is understanding. Our goal is to learn, look at all these things so that we can understand the passage that we're reading. And, and actually, I should say, it's not understanding. It, the goal is transformation. Because every time we study the Word of God, we want to be conformed into the image of Christ. We want it conforming us. Okay, so that's why we're setting all this up and taking the time to do it. Okay, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you were here yesterday at church, we, we started on this. Now, oh, and I want to show you this. A lot of times when I, when I first came to uh, Hickory Grove, I um, came and started taking precept Bible studies, and it was that time that I really learned, taking precept Bible studies, that I learned some good, basic study habits and study skills. And one of the things you do in precept is you take a paper with the passage that you're studying. It's, you, it's printed out. And then I take my marker and my pens and I go through and I mark it up and I, and I study with it like that. Well, with precept, one of the first things that you do is you read through the book and you mark every time you come to the author. Anytime the author is mentioned, you mark it. And that's a great way to figure out what there is to say about him. So, um, Looking at Ephesians 1.1, we're not going to take the time to do that, obviously, but we are going to take a look at a few things about him. Okay, I'm going to read Ephesians 1.1 and some other verses. As I do, I want you to do two things. I want you to watch for what is being said about the author, and I want you to watch for what is being said about the recipients. Okay? All right. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, for our fence about the author, we're going to put Paul. And if you want to, you could even add that he's an apostle. All right, turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Okay, now turn over to chapter 4. 
Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, by the way, a little side note. Did you see that's chapter 4? Boom, we're turning into, this is how you act, okay? So you won't get that till chapter 4. Okay, Ephesians chapter 6. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Okay. Now, what did you learn about the author? Where, where is he writing from? He's writing from prison. He's in chains. Yes. Okay, this is known as one of the prison epistles, consequently. Um, but this is going to bring a whole new layer to what you study. Because he's going to talk about the power of God. And he's going to talk about blessing. And he's in chains. Okay? What, um, did you see anything else? No, nope, I asked that question before. I'm sorry, back up. The recipients. <laughs> okay, audience participation. Participation. <laughs> Who's he writing to? Saints who are in Ephesus. Very good. Okay, anything else did you learn about these saints that are in Ephesus? They're faithful. Good. Anything else? What did you learn from... 3-1. Gentiles. It's predominantly a Gentile. This is predominantly a Gentile um, audience. All right, now, here's the big thing that I want us to see. Paul is writing to the saints. He's writing to believers, okay? Now, that's important. On any given Sunday, when we gather together in the service downstairs, it's a mixture, okay? You have believers... You have new believers, you have unbelievers being dragged there by new believers, you have people who think they are believers because it is the South and they are sitting in a Baptist church, you have people who think they are believers because they recited a prayer one day when they were very young. You have a mixture, and the book of Ephesians is not written to the mixture, it's written to the saints. And that's very critical. Now, can a non-believer, can God use the book of Ephesians and speak to a non-believer? Yes, absolutely. We're talking about interpretation here. How you interpret the passage is going to be based on the fact that he is writing to believers. Okay? All right, let's move on to the historical setting. All right, scholars place the writing of the book at about 60 to 61 AD. 60 to 61. That figure is about the time that Paul is in Rome under arrest. He's probably in his 60s, and it's about 30 years after the resurrection. Okay? Now we want to talk a little bit about Ephesus, about the Ephesians. Ephesus, this is on your paper. Ephesus was one of the most prominent and elegant cities of Asia Minor. Right, number one, it was the center for the worship of Diana. Okay, sometimes she's called Artemis, and it was the location of her great temple. Now, the temple in Ephesus was magnificent. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and consequently, it makes Ephesus a tourist town. 
You've got a lot of people coming, and you've got businesses depending on the temple. Okay, think about um, Charlotte and our beloved Speedway and all the different businesses that are here as a result of the temple. Very similar. People were coming to see that temple from all over the world. Think of it as an adult Disney world. Okay, and adult being the key word there. Okay, um, the worship of Diana was not the only religion, but it's the most important in the city. What I want you to remember is this, was a, this city had a highly successful religious institution in place. Okay, number two, it was a banking center. The temple housed a bank, and the nations and the cities and various people would come to it for loans. Now, it was a very good fit when you have a bank and a temple. Because if you have a bank with a lot of money, it makes your God look very powerful and rich. If you are a banker, it keeps robbers from robbing you because you don't want to risk making mad the rich and powerful God of the temple. So uh, the two go together. <clears throat> okay, number three, it had a sheltered port and was located on several trade routes. <clears throat> okay, now when you hear the word port and trade routes, I want you to think, shopping malls, okay? If you had a port, that means ships are coming to your city. If you have trade routes, that means merchants are coming to your city. You're the one that has access to the fabrics and the spices and all the cutting edge stuff of your day. Okay, if you have commerce, that means the libraries come and the arts and the sciences and the leisure activities. Um, uh, Ephesus had a large arena that boasted 25,000 seats. Some say as much as 50. Now, our Panther Stadium seats 70. Time Warner seats 20,000. So the one in Ephesus is probably somewhere in the center. Okay. Um, archaeologists have found evidence of marble streets and early forms of air conditioning. In other words, this was no podunk town. This was a cosmopolitan city. Okay, it was also well informed. If you have got ships coming in and trade merchants coming through, that brings information. So while they didn't have uh, the cable news, they had the next best thing of their day. Now with the wealth and prosperity, you have the problem side as well. For one thing, if you have a port, you have sailors. If there are sailors, you have prostitutes. Okay, so you had that going on. If you have trade routes, you have an international crowd. And with that, comes the, their gods and their religions. Which brings us to our next point. Number four, Ephesus was racially diverse and was known for its practice of witchcraft, sorcery, and sexual immorality. The trade routes and the temple and the port, they brought the nations and their gods. Okay? The city we read about in the book of Acts, it was famous for its interest in witchcraft and sorcery. The people were very interested in the spiritual. Okay? Also, Diana, she was the fertility god. And if you want to please the fertility god, then you emulate her okay? in your worship. So consequently, the worship of Diana was very erotic and involved temple prostitutes. So you have a city that is glamorizing and exalting sexual immorality. You have a city, think about this, you have a city filled with women, you have a city filled with provocative and willing women. Number five, 
on a brighter note. <laughs> it became a strategic hub for Christian missions. Because of its locations, leaders could train in Ephesus and then shoot out to the neighboring countries. Also, um, the world was coming to Ephesus so they could hear the gospel there and then take it to their homes. The book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, was thought to be a secular, circular, circular letter. Uh, it was written to the church of Ephesus and then intended to be circulated. All right, now what does any of this have to do with us? Why do we need to know this? Well, for starters, when we read through the book of Ephesians, we can remember that first audience, <clears throat> that they led very complicated lives and that they were facing many of the same things that we are facing. And that this book can be a book to teach us how to flourish in a very difficult and a pagan culture. How are we supposed to function in a sexually obsessed culture, a materialistic culture, in a culture that is just spiritually confused? We can, we can read Ephesians. We can, we can study Ephesians, particularly uh, those first three chapters of the doctrine. Okay. Now, let's take a look at the last fence. It is concerning the purpose or the theme of the book. <clears throat> As for the purpose, I want to start with the tone. One of the things that we're going to see very quickly is the tone is worshipful. It is worshipful and encouraging. It's worshipful and encouraging. And remember, he is in chains. Okay? The book of Ephesians is unusual in that he doesn't seem to be addressing any specific problems or he's not writing to correct anything that they're doing wrong. Okay? So that makes it a little more difficult in determining what um, <clears throat> he's writing, what the purpose of the writing is. But the tone is worshipful and encouraging, so we'll keep that in mind as we, as we read. Uh, in addition to the tone, we can also look at some of the repeated topics that we're going to see in the book. Okay, we're going to write down just a few. We're not going to do all of them, just a few. Okay, number one, repeated themes in Ephesians. Number one is in him. This week as you read, you're going to be struck with the repetition of the expression in him, in him, in him. You'll, you'll also see in Christ or in the beloved, different variations of that. Um, one, uh, when you become a Christian, you are in him. You used to be in Adam, but now you are given a new identity. Okay, now a wonderful assignment is to go through the book and mark every time you see that expression and um, come across it. Okay, your new identity is a major theme in the book of Ephesians. Okay, now think about it. Why was it so important that you understand your new identity? Well, because you live in a culture like the Ephesians did where we talked about that third fence. You live in a culture that is hostile toward God. And so we need to know and understand our identity. Okay, another key and repeated word throughout the book of Ephesians is number two, church. The church. <clears throat> um, one of the other things that you do when you're studying with precept is you read through the passage and you, and you mark every time you come to a mention of the recipients. So I did that. Now, I, I made the mistake of marking down all the pronouns every time the, the church was referred to. 
and I had to quit doing it because my paper was just one big blog. But I learned something. I learned that this book is about the church. This book is about the body of Christ, and we're going to be talking a great deal about that. Um, we don't talk a lot about that. We talk a lot about our individual that we have been saved and that we're a new creature in Christ. What we don't talk a lot about is how you are a new creature and a part of a body, okay? We, as Americans, we are very wired to be independent and to be individuals. Um, my husband, he buys me AAA, so I don't have to bother anybody if my car breaks down. That's just, we think like that. We want to be, be independent. Um, several years ago, the Army had a campaign, and it was called... Um, it showed, uh, showed a soldier running alone on the beach. And the tag was an army of one. <clears throat> think about that. Is there anything more ridiculous? <laughs> I mean, think about your enemies. Are they, are they threatened by an army of one? No. Think about, well, they would probably love to face an army where everybody was being an individual and off doing their own thing. We're going to study the book of Ephesians and learn we are not an army of one. We're a body. Ephesians is said to be Paul's greatest word on the church. I have three kids, and when they were little, there were times that I would have to sit them down, and we would have a family powwow. Now, sometimes I would talk separately to the children, but there were times where I would sit them all down to have a little talk. It was usually if we were getting ready to go to a family event where there might be non-believers, or maybe we were getting ready to go somewhere and, I, and, and people might know who I was, so I would, so I would sit them down <clears throat> and give them a speech that went something like this. Okay, here's the deal. I need you to behave yourselves. <laughs> yeah. You are geeslers, okay? We are, we are a Christian family, and I need for you to act like that on this trip, okay? Now, um, that's not to say that I didn't give specific instruction to each one of them, but the overall message was we are a family. We are a unit, okay? We are not going to try to do this separately. It's not good enough for one of us to make it. We're all going to do this. The book of Ephesians is the family powwow. The book of Ephesians is Paul sitting his family down on the couch and saying, family, we are the body of Christ. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. We are, you are the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Now act like it. <laughs> Okay, Now, I read an article by CBS News that was entitled, The Lonely States of America. And in it, the writer described a survey that was taken to research social isolation in America. And people were asked this question, who are the people with whom you discussed matters most important to you? The authors of the study were shocked because the numbers had de decreased dramatically. What they found was in a country where a social networking has exploded, they found they estimated that almost half of the country falls into the category of living in social isolation. Americans are lonely. They're not experiencing healthy, loving relationships. Paul 
is going to explain what the church is like, and it is going to stand in polar opposition to anything else out there in the world. So we'll be talking about the church. Number three, and I'm going to go through this quickly. Another passage, another phrase that you will see is the phrase, in the heavenly realms. In the heavenly realms. This is a unique expression to Ephesians. We'd only see it in this book. It is used five times. You're going to see it in your reading this week. I want to give you quickly a brief definition for that. It is the unseen world of spiritual reality. Unseen world of spiritual reality. In other words, it is the idea that there is more going on in this world than meets the eye. Okay? And we're going to talk about that in Ephesians. Number four, you're going to see the word mystery often in the book of Ephesians. And I want to give you a definition for that because it can mean something different than the way we interpret it in the English. When we in the English think of a mystery, we think of something dark and secret and puzzling. In the Greek, where it's used here, it is more of a term where, yes, it was once secret, but now it is opened, okay? Um, I'm going to give you a definition by John Stott, and that is on your paper. It is a truth hidden from human knowledge or understanding, but now disclosed by the revelation of God. Okay, it's something that was once veiled, but now God has revealed it so that we can understand it. Now, when you get into the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to talk about things that are, not, have, are revealed now that were not revealed in the Old Testament. But he's also going to be talking about things that are not fully revealed to us yet. C.J. Mahoney uh, had a good uh, explanation for this. He said, when we're reading the book of Ephesians, we need to get comfortable with mystery. We need to be comfortable with mystery, especially when our subject is God. We're going to be studying a big God. Okay? Uh, another couple words are the words love and power, and I have put them in a possible summary or theme of the book on the bottom of your page. And that is our identity in Christ rooted in love, walking in power. And I, and I could have put uh, building a community in Christ rooted in love, walking in power. Either one of those would have worked. Now, I want to close with some brief warning about your next week's homework, or about your first week's homework, which the good news, by the way, is that you have two weeks to do it because we don't meet next week, so you have two full weeks to work on it and get yourself uh, familiar with the book of Ephesians. Oh, and by the way, uh, the author claims that these lessons are intended to be done in about 90 minutes. I, I found that to be um, like worst case scenario. It will probably not take you that long to do that. But um, she also includes added things for you to do if you want some in-depth um, additional reading. Uh, okay, now here's the, um, here's the warning. Your first chapter portion that you'll be reading is verses 1 through 15 in chapter 1. They, are, they will be your hardest. This will be the most difficult passage that you read. Verses 3 through 14 is one long verse in the Greek. And it's one of those passages that scholars have been challenged with ever since it was written. Okay, but I want to remind you, we know something. You see, we know who the original recipients were. 
we know that those original readers, they were Gentiles. They didn't grow up in the church. They, they were former pagans. And based on the timeline, it's not likely that they have been Christians very long. So the book of Ephesians is not written to scholars. The book of Ephesians is written to the ordinary believer. Okay, so don't let that passage intimidate you. All right, now as you read it, I, and I, I would give you a slight recommendation, it's wordy. So sometimes when you read it I, with me, I can kind of zone out and, and I kind of got to force myself to come back in. What I would recommend is take a pencil and watch for the verbs as you read it. Watch for those action words because they're going to be describing what God has done for you. And because it's going to be describing the actions of God. So maybe watch those. And then it's easier after you do that to figure out the modifiers. Paul kind of ODs on uh, prepositional phrases. They're just all, and it gets a little confusing sometimes. But stay focused, watch the verbs, and, then, and I, it'll be much easier for you. And, and then you'll get it. And then we're going to talk next, next time and just really uh, enjoy that, enjoy this passage. Okay, um, I'm excited. I'm excited about what God has for us in this study. Okay, uh, you have a, I'm going to pray for us. You have a, a short little assignment to kind of work on in your small groups that will also help prepare you for your study for the next week. So let me pray us out, and then uh, we'll get started. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your word is living and powerful. We praise you for that. And my special prayer is that these women will just... Uh, Take the time to spend in your word, meditating on it. I pray that you'll give them understanding, that you'll, that you'll take these words and use them and encourage them with it. Uh, Father, the, the, the letter is intended to be worshipful. I pray that it'll bring the worship out. I pray that you will use it to encourage their hearts mightily. And Father, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen.